Hi, my name's Will Fulser and I am a CG Environment Supervisor. Hello, you're listening to the Five Rooms Podcast. Thank you for joining me for episode 10 the final podcast in this first series of five rooms. My guest this week is Will Fulzer, who works in the visual effects industry as a CG environment generalist supervisor. This may seem like a bit of a mouthful to those outside of the visual effects industry, but fundamentally, Will's work involves creating breathtaking and believable computer-generated environments for feature film and television. Growing up in South London, Will drew inspiration from a wide range of TV and film and particularly from his mother's talent as an accomplished artist. Never settling on one format, he spent his youth experimenting with model making, photography, film and sketching, enjoying a wide range of ways to express his creative instincts. After studying computer animation at Bournemouth University, Will established his career at DNEG, one of the world's leading visual effects and animation studios. His first role was working on set capturing camera data for Joe Cornish's 2011 hit, Attack the Block. Since then, he has worked on a wide range of Hollywood blockbusters, including Interstellar, Bohemian Rhapsody, Mission Impossible Fallout, and Avengers Infinity War. Most recently, he has been involved in Christopher Nolan's 2020 espionage thriller, Tenet, starring John David Washington and Robert Pattinson on their mind-bending mission to prevent the start of World War III. Beyond the world of film, Will was environment supervisor for Chernobyl, the critically acclaimed five-part miniseries that dramatises the events of one of the worst man-made catastrophes in history. In this slightly longer episode of Five Rooms, our conversation covers his formative years growing up in Dulwich, the often complicated relationship between Hollywood and the visual effects industry, and resisting the temptation to express love to inspirational filmmakers. Will Fulser. Thank you so much for joining me today on Five Rooms. How are you doing? Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm very well, thank you. Yes, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, really looking forward to this. In the introduction, we heard your job title and your your full job title is CG Environment Generalist Supervisor. So is there any chance we could just break this down just to explain what this all means? Yeah, it's quite a lot to it, isn't it? I think, um, so CG obviously means computer generated and then the environment part is... um, within visual effects. So there's visual effects and there's special effects. Special effects are on set practical effects and visual effects are digital effects, which is which are what we do. And within environments, that's primarily concerned with the environment. Um, so we don't do characters, we don't do um, vehicles or anything like that. We can be involved in doing set extensions or creating in, entire new environments that don't even exist. and the supervisor part obviously means that I supervise teams. I say I can because I don't always supervise teams. Sometimes you'll be on a project and you'll just be an artist or sometimes you'll be a supervisor. Great. I think that's really clear. So a lot of what you're doing is you're building worlds, you're, uh, you're extending sets as they are. So there's, there's, we're dealing with the environment in which the film is kind of taking place here. Exactly, yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. Just wanted <laughs> to make sure we're all on the same page before we kick off. No so, worries. Uh, Let's start with room one, which is early life. So let's create a space that represents your formative years. Talk me through how the space looks to you. Ever since I was little, I I loved being creative and and making things, you know. That probably started with things like Tony Hart and to probably to a lesser extent Neil Buchanan on Art Attack. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved that stuff. I found I found doing things with my hands and being creative. I got got a real kick out of it. My mum my probably had a big influence on me as well because she's 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 an amazing artist, like really fine draftsman or draftswoman, would you say? Um, draftsperson? Draftsperson, yeah. yeah. She's um got real real life of detail. That was probably really a natural predisposition to it, and my mum as well being being very inspiring to me when I was little. And then I suppose as I as I got a bit older, I I really started to take note of, 
I, I used to go to this toy shop after school called Mr. Green's in uh, Dulwich Village. And I think it's still there. Um, in fact, I know it's still there, but I don't know if Mr. Green is still around. He, he was quite old when I was young, um, but he was a lovely man. At the back of the shop, there was there was the, the toy section and the front was stationary. Um, at the back, there was a, a woman there called Gloria, and she used to make these little FIMO sort of cakes and models for dolls' houses. And FIMO is just this modeling clay that you you model and you put it in the oven and you bake it and i i was i was fascinated by what 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 she did and, and she was really really lovely took an interest in me and saw that i was interested in making things and so she sort of took me under her wing a little bit and i'd make things and um come and show her and and see what she thought of them yeah from from there i guess it i guess it just snowballed really and games as well. I was really, I was really interested in video games when I was little because I, I, they just blew my mind that, that you could interact with something on screen. Just to go back to the beginning, there we may need to explain a British pop culture reference with uh, Tony Hart and Neil Buchanan to some of our international listeners who may not be aware. They were uh, TV presenters who used to present on. It was two different TV programs, um, but they they had a big impact on I think a lot of people because what they were doing is bringing. They were sort of teaching like a play along kind of art class, really, in the, in the form of TV. Um, not only were they doing this themselves as artists, but they were also kind of showcasing children's artwork as well. Uh, I know that I used to love both of these people as as well hugely. That there was something lovely about sort of the gentle Tony Hart um, and and his kind of character and his persona and what he brought. And then Neil Buchanan's a bit more kind of the chaotic, kid friendly thing, but still, there's there's a lot of passion from them. Mm. Both of them. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, on Tony Hart, they also had something called Morph, which was, um, I don't know if it was an Aardman animation, but it's its in that vein, that claymation, Wallace and Gromit type thing. Mm. I, yeah, I think it was it was Peter Lord who was behind Morph and he was one of the main, main people behind Aardman. Yeah. Ah, okay. There we go. They were a lot of fun to watch. They sort of just hit each other and... <laughs> <laughs> do various kind of itchy and scratchy and Tom and Jerry type things to one another. Not as not as gruesome as itchy and scratchy, but probably more of a British take on it, yeah. Appropriately going from morph, the kind of claymation figures, you're creating your own figures as well. Were you creating them and firing them? Were you kind of freezing them in time? Or, or did you ever kind of play around with doing stop motion animation yourself? Yeah, so I did. I did both. I mean, I, I'd fire and make little characters, bake them in the oven, and then I did sort of... Well, see, the thing is, it, it wasn't until we had a video camera, which was when I was a bit, a little bit older, but I would do stop motion animation with teddy bears and that sort of thing, which was great fun. Many hours wasted <laughs> making little <laughs> films that I'd forced my, my mum and dad to watch. They always acted like they were, they were very impressed by them. So I guess that gave me some encouragement to, to keep going. Well, that's great. And that's, that's good that there was some encouragement. You mentioned that your mum was a, was a fantastic which did did she draw did she paint or what was what was kind of her medium yeah so she was she was primarily just um she just drew pencils charcoals um lots of life drawing conte stick which is like charcoal a compressed form of it yeah i was particularly impressed by some drawings that she did when she went to italy when she was um, I think in her early 20s, drawing sculptures, they were so meticulously realised. And you, to the point where years later, when I saw photos of the actual sculptures, I recognised them from my mum's drawings. She was a big inspiration. I think she she really blew my little mind that that you could draw that well. You mentioned about picking up the family video camera. You were doing animations, things like that. What was What was your relationship to the video camera? Yeah, a bunch of stuff really. There was there was the the silly comedy things I'd try and do, which weren't always necessarily animation. Usually based on something that I'd seen and been inspired by. Either try to lampoon it or copy it in some way and 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 figure it out. I mean, that's a big thing of when you're doing art and you're being creative is you you're inspired by things, then you you try and break it apart and work out how it works and I think that's a lot of where the drive and inspiration comes from when you copy it and you don't quite get it right, but you you get something else out of it and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe I can 
explore that a, a little bit more. So I did a yeah a fair amount of that with with the video camera and and just drawing in general really and sculpting. I was really into everything and I still am. And I guess that will perhaps lead later on in the conversation to a bit more of what my job is. But I I love. I love technology and I love art and it all kind of feeds into into itself and I I didn't particularly like being stuck in one medium so going back to the video camera I really like doing that but I also liked drawing and I also like sculpting and also like taking photos and you know just exploring lots of different creative outlets so lots of different ways in which you can tell stories tell jokes you know it's the the full picture that you're trying to paint here what were those films that had a big impression on you where maybe you were trying to recreate certain things, even if you were lampooning them. Are there, are there particular films that really grabbed you when you were younger? Things that I seem to remember a lot from when I was a kid were things that scared me, such as Watership Down. That really scared me as a kid. And I sort of developed a bit of a fascination with it. Jaws. I never saw Jaws as a kid, but I saw bits of it, snippets of it when it was on TV and say my my parents might be watching it or my brother. That was that really stuck in my my brain. The snowman, that wasn't scary, obviously, but it was <laughs> <laughs> a bit more gentle than Watership Down. A bit more bit more gentle than yeah, rabbits being gassed and <laughs> <laughs> But it's heartbreaking. I remember when I was a kid that um, I, I absolutely loved the film and I'd always stop the tape before the snowman melted. Spoilers there. Sorry, I should have said. You... Don't worry, we'll, we'll do a spoiler. <laughs> I'll do a spoiler warning at the beginning of the uh, podcast. But yeah, you used to stop it right before the end just to avoid the heartbreak. Yeah, just to just to avoid the heartbreak of of, wow. of him of him losing his friend, and I think that Raymond Briggs is he's he's a genius. Like I I I love so much of what he's done, and I think that's really important in in storytelling and and for children's development as well. Is to to not just present this saccharine everything's fine and it all works out fine in the end representation of life and the world around us i think i really love that in that film it shows that life is short and it's beautiful and enjoy it probably on some subconscious level as a child you're you're picking up on or you're you're picking up on all of these things that are going on and and i think it's a wonderful message that that that, that film has it's what i find really interesting about all of this is the fact that you were kind of self-censoring in a way because you knew that even from a young age, you kind of knew the pain of that loss at the end of the end of the film. It's really mm. interesting. Like it's kind of an intuition for that kind of storytelling. The things in films that were blocked for me when I was a kid were usually if we were watching Indiana Jones and it's particularly with Raiders of the Lost Ark, the moment where they open the arc at the end, suddenly four fingers would cover my eyes as my mum made sure that I didn't <laughs> see any melting Nazis. So, <laughs> which, I, which I think is probably the right thing to have done. But at the same time, there was always this fascination. I'd be like, what's going on? I can hear everything. And that's quite scary. <laughs> but Do you think yeah. that was maybe worse in a way, not seeing it? I don't know. I mean, I do consider myself to be quite a sensitive person anyway. And But at the same time, I think it's, yeah, it's interesting because there was just a fascination to understand what that was. But mm. it's it's interesting how the perception of films also changes over time as well. So with something like The Snowman, I probably wouldn't have necessarily picked up on that as a kid. But I think as a 30-something-year-old man, now I would probably burst into tears at the end of that. And mm. the fragility of what is being communicated there. There's so many films that I think really grab you. Like Dumbo, for me, was a a film which I can't understand, having watched it since. But Dumbo was one of my favourite animations as a kid. Yeah. And there's so much in it, which is pretty harrowing. And there's mother being separated from son. And there's, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of really intense emotional moments. And I watched it a few years ago, having not seen it in about 20, 25 years. Mm. And I just thought, oh, God, this is just, <laughs> this is brutal. <laughs> but maybe that's just, um, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't know what it was that really captured my imagination when I was a kid. But uh, anyway, there we go. Bambi's another classic, isn't it? The, mm, when, when you watch it, it is, it is 
it is absolutely brutal and i think like you said like you're saying yeah watching it now would would be a different experience i watched a film the other day still magnolias it's not a film for kids but it, it sets itself up as a lovely film it's sort of very happy-go-lucky and then something happens in it and i won't tell you what but it's it just yeah floods of tears <laughs> it's so <laughs> I, th- I guess it's that one too of um a bit like these these animations where it's kind of like animations lull you into this it's all it's happy it's nice it's everything's colorful and it's and still magnolias is a bit like that they're very colorful happy-go-lucky characters and it, it makes when tragedy strikes all all the kind of more intense and 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 upsetting when it does happen but um that's the good stuff like that's why that's why you go to see films isn't it i mean it's a it's a you want to feel something you want to experience some sort of emotion emotional response when you go it's the the catharsis is an enjoyable thing Mm. i think and uh yeah a good way to understand maybe slightly difficult emotions and uh and have yeah. that kind of presented to you. I think it can be, yeah, shows the power of power of that emotion. Okay, so uh, we've spoken a bit about early films and early things which which had an impression on you. If we're going to try and recreate a space that represents your youth, I feel like we need to pick up all of these different things. We need to kind of have your desk where you're drawing and then have some clay in the corner. Maybe, um, yeah, maybe some of the Flymo clay from when you've been modelling the video camera, maybe on the other side of the table. It feels like there's a you're a, you're a mixed medium sort of person here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if I should correct you, but it's FIMO, not FIMO. <laughs> okay, it's all right. <laughs> I don't know if you're the right. The thing is, I can picture it because I spent many many days in my youth in art shops as well, and I should know that really. That's- <laughs> I was a plasticine guy. I, I was Wallace and Gromit was the big influence on me. Again, oh. I was influenced by Oddman. So uh, yeah, I used to wear a lot of plasticine, and for, for me, was re- recreating um, Gromit a lot. I had so many versions of Gromit as I tried to work out how they made him. Oh, anyway. you're, you're part of the other gang then, like West Side yeah. Story. <laughs> <laughs> the morph on one side and Wallace and Gromit on the other, just yeah. clicking their fingers. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's a great animation. Let's write that down. <laughs> Uh, from animation, you ended up studying 3D animation at Bournemouth University. What was your experience like on the course and, and how important was it as a stepping stone to get into the industry that you're now in? It, it gave me the foundation to do my job, really, because I I remember trying to open 3D software before going to Bournemouth. I mean, even opening Photoshop and I was just terrified. I, I remember distinctly opening Photoshop and thinking, ah, and then just closing it again. (laughs) And it was in the days before YouTube and any sort of, I mean, you could buy books, you know, on Photoshop or Maya, but it's so difficult to learn when you're just reading. Someone isn't actively showing you what they're clicking on and what they're doing and why they're doing it. So I pretty quickly realized that that wasn't the way to go. Going to Bournemouth, I, I I applied to Bournemouth and Teesside, I think. I picked Bournemouth because it had a beach. <laughs> and <laughs> I think I think at the time it was probably a bit more revered than Teesside, but I think they at the time they were the two best best universities in in the UK that you could study it. And so going there was 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 brilliant because I was all of a sudden I was around other like-minded people who were really keen to learn animation and who are really passionate about it. We were all kind of varying different levels of abilities. Some people were, there's probably like two or three in the class who were, who were really ahead of the game. And one of the guys who, who was writing his own game engine and another guy like knew, he just seemed to know tons about 3D software and rendering. And then they were right down to sort of people who, didn't know very much about the 3D software at all, like myself, um, but who were kind of from more of an artistic background. And again, Bournemouth at the time was the course was split 50-50 between creative and technical. So what that meant was on one hand you'd have programming and then using the software, graphical mathematics, all of that kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, you'd have life drawing and more 
creative topics. It really gave me my introduction to using all the software and we all learned together, me and my friends. It was great because, I mean, at the time, it was still pretty niche to use this stuff. Animation and that sort of stuff was still seen as being really nerdy. I mean, it probably still is, but it's... Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the thing that maybe shifted a huge amount in terms of the CGI industry, I think you've had, and we'll, we'll talk more about this later, but you've had a generation of Marvel films coming through. People have a greater understanding for what it means in terms of what can be done with animation and stories that can be told. So I think maybe there's more understanding than there was because you were at university and, well, you started the course in 2006, is that right? 2000, yeah. So uh, yeah, in that time, there's been this large shift towards that that kind of understanding and and the way that the industry works i guess yeah and i think i think technology has become more pervasive uh, probably mr jobs had a big role to play in that with the invention of the iphone and i i, I feel like before then computers and were just kind of like things you did spreadsheets on and you could go on the internet and it was starting to become a a more important thing but it wasn't it wasn't really cool and it wasn't it wasn't made easy for people to understand and I I think things like that and games consoles becoming ever more and more advanced and and yeah and then of course as you're saying film and special effects becoming more and more integral to to the filmmaking process has sort of made people more at ease with it and more aware of it and given them more of an understanding of just what's involved in in producing these kind of images. We covered a lot of ground already in the first room, but let's move on to the uh, second room, which is influences. So in the centre of this space, we're going to display one key influence in your life. So obviously we're influenced by so many different things, and especially you as somebody who was interested in so many different ways of expressing artistically. But what one influence are we going to celebrate in this room today? It's a really tricky one, but I think it always comes to the front of my mind whenever I think about this topic. And it's probably a, a bit of a cliche, but it is Blade Runner. I can still remember when I very first saw it. It was on Channel Four. Channel Four used to show all these like weird and wonderful films late night, and it was it was really great for broadening your mind. And Blade Runner happened to be one of them one night. And I think it was accompanied with a, a Mark Kermode documentary, which was fascinating. But I remember I remember it coming on TV and my dad sort of walked into the room and he said, oh, this, this Blade Runner. I said, yeah. So it's a great film. And I thought, oh, my, my dad's got good taste in films. So I, that sort of made my ears prick up and made me think, oh, okay, I'm in, I'm in for something here. It blew my mind. Yeah, it was it was so the attention to detail and the the lighting. It's it's a film that I never get bored of watching because I always see something new in it and it's such an unusual film as well when you when you watch it. Like the narrative is it's almost like a sort of art film because it doesn't follow a a particular Hollywood narrative. I know it's trying to be a film noir or it's 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 inspired by by film noir and it, it does go along those lines. There was so, it's full of so many weird and wonderful characters and unusual storytelling that you get lost in it. Well, I get I, I get lost in it when I watch it. I understand why you say that it almost sounds cliched, but it is such a work of art. It's incredible work by Ridley Scott, and there's so much iconic imagery throughout the film. You know, from that incredible opening where you're just hovering over the city. I don't think he's ever really seen that in film before, that sort of level of this kind of dystopian view of the future. And then within the film itself, obviously I- iconic shots and, and performances. Again, there's there's also got a lot of mystique, I guess, behind the camera. And you've you've got Ridley Scott, who sort of, it's the film that he can't put down himself because of all the different versions of the film, which have come out of the woodwork, all the different director's edits and extended cuts and, and things like that. There's There is just something kind of magical in there the more you read about it the more fascinated by it you become there's there's, a, there's an excellent book called future noir the making of blade Runner. it's a big big thick book and it's written by a journalist called paul salmon and he was on set well he he was not only on set but he was involved in the very very beginning of the production when it was first optioned and it gives you 
like a complete insight into the making of, of the film. One of the things I, I, I've, I've learned from my time working in film and being on set is that it's a miracle that any film gets made and that any films are actually good because there's so many places that things can go wrong. Reading Future Noir, you, you realise that, as you are saying, it was such a troubled production, but somehow they managed to create this this beautiful almost mess in a way but it makes sense they've managed to make sense out of it <laughs> it's a great book yeah it's, it's really really worth reading it really sort of heightens your appreciation for the film as well and you know wonderful bits of like Rooker Hauer writing that that speech that he 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 delivers perfectly on 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 the roof at the end of the film that film is 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 an inspiration not just visually but narratively and also for the creative process as well it's 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 very organic when you read the book how the film developed and changed and Ridley Scott sort of saying oh, I like I like this uh, don't like this or oh, I like where this is going let's keep going that way and and you sort of hear from concept artists on the show like Sid Mead getting a bit frustrated with Ridley Scott because he'd do drawings and and show them to him and then do exactly what he wanted. But then Ridley Scott said, oh, not, not quite what I wanted, or maybe we could try this instead. And he said eventually he kind of got into the swing of it and he really started to enjoy it, the process, because Ridley Scott was widely regarded and probably still is as, as having the best eye in the business. And you can see it. So many of his films, he's he's written the textbook on science fiction at least, and then rewrote it again for historical epics for with Gladiator. And he's the the master really with with light and composition. And I don't know how you can't be inspired by his work really if you're into any sort of visual mediums. We've spoken about the first Blade Runner in 2017 is the release of Blade Runner 2049. And that was directed by Denis Villeneuve, which is, you know, a, a different director, again, applauded in his own rights. But what were your thoughts on on that film as a follow-up? I didn't like it. I mean, it's, I don't think a sequel to the film should, should exist, really, even if it was directed by Ridley Scott. I think it's a part of the appeal of that original film for me was its 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 mystery and the fact that it, it there was just this one film and there was nothing like it of course afterwards there were films that tried to be like it but were never never really managed to to get there and i feel like unfortunately the sequel falls into that category a bit for me there's certainly some there's some really nice visuals in there but one of my colleagues, actually, who he's a bit old and he went to see Blade Runner when it came out. And, and he said it was just like it was everything to an aspiring artist. who. And then he, he, he described it as a master and apprentice type thing where the sequel was, was, was not quite there. And I think although perhaps the narrative is sort of more linear than the original, I think it, I think it suffers a bit because it's one of the main things I love about the first film is that it feels a bit like a dream. Dreams are quite a big part of it as well. You know, Decker dreams of like the unicorn. There's photographs are almost quite dreamlike in it when there's a picture of Rachel on the porch and it slowly comes to life for a couple of frames. And he, he paints light around with lots of twinkly light and shimmery, caustics on walls reflections from 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 water and i loved all that stuff in the original i loved that it's so it's so ambiguous but it feels so alive and you feel like you could turn a corner in this world and see a whole the city just going on and on and on it also does this thing which really irritates me with when people do follow-ups to films where they feel the need to explain everything that's happened in the first one um i don't know if you see have you seen the second Blade Runner. Mm, yeah. You know, in the first film, they talk about, this is one example where Rachel has, um, she's questioned about her, her upbringing and Deckard knows this memory that only, she hadn't told anyone. And he talks about that being an implanted memory. And it's just, it's just kind of brushed over. And he's just like, I don't know, they're Tyrell's nieces. There's someone, there's someone, someone just made it up. And then in the sequel, they show you this, the person who makes these memories. And I, I just thought, 
Oh, why, why do I need to see that? The, the joy of the original is like they just they were just chucking out ideas everywhere. And Alien is very similar as well, like with the jockey, the space jockey and the spaceship. When they discover it, they're like, they don't know what it is and they never explain what it is. It's this other alien creature that's being killed by another alien creature. And it's so mysterious and it's so fascinating. It's so scary. And then they did the same in Prometheus. They explained what these guys are. And I, it's disappointing. I know why they've done it. Because it's like, oh, you remember? You remember that from the first film? I'd, I'd kind of just wish that they'd they'd go with it and you know make up some new stuff in that universe because you can make up anything in in that Blade Runner universe and 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 do some really cool stuff with it. And it's a dangerous game when you when you peek behind the curtain, mm. you, know, you can get into sort of all sorts of trouble. And uh, sometimes you end up with midi chlorians. You know, <laughs> exactly. sometimes you end you end up with ways where you're unpicking the magic of the original inadvertently. I think it's yeah. it's a difficult balance because I think it's good to broaden an audience. It's good to bring people in to a lore and to a mythology, but you don't want to do it to the point where you take away the mystique. And you you don't want it to be so neat. Like George Lucas is really, everyone in the Star Wars re- universe is related to one another, and it's like why mm. why 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 do they have to be? Yeah. It's it's this huge universe where it, it doesn't add anything to the story. With a film that had such a big impact on you, that's always going to happen. I think yeah. I, I think it happens in all sorts of mediums you've seen it happen with the star wars universe with people saying oh that's not that doesn't feel like star wars or you know that doesn't feel like it belongs in the same universe sometimes it's a case of well you're explaining something which doesn't need to be explained something which is up for interpretation and in that you can lose some of the what made the original so good but i just thought it was interesting to talk about just going back to blade runner if we're going to represent blade runner in the second room how would you like to present it? Would you like to have the whole film on a loop? Is there one particular scene? Are we just going to have the, the VHS box on the, on the table? <laughs> How would you like to present it? Gosh, yeah. I think um, the, the tears in rain scene is just, uh, it, it always gets me. It's, it's, it's beautifully shot. It's got everything in it. It's, it's the whole film. It's the whole of life. It's the whole of existence. It's, yeah, they really nailed that scene. And there's a reason why it's, you know, so iconic quoted everywhere okay great so as we listen to the words of Rutger Hauer we're going to move on from room two into room three where we're going to talk about tools so in this room we're going to boil down the essential items that you need to be a CG environment generalist supervisor so talk me through the essential tools for you sure so (laughs) at the moment it's zoom um (laughs) (laughs) yes as we are in 2020 (laughs) yeah i mean to and then even at a more basic level a pc so i mean pretty much all the work we do is 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 on a computer there's a fair amount of uh as as it's called data acquisition where you you'll you'll go on set with digital slr and take texture reference uh just general reference reference for map paintings um there's also photogrammetry photogrammetry is becoming a bigger part of our workflow so that would that involves taking lots and lots of pictures and building a 3d model out of those and then software wise my job is it uses a wide range of tools really from program called zbrush which is high detail sculpting uh, Maya, which is modeling, animation, scene assembly. You can render stuff in it as well. Renderers, uh, w- once you've got your models, you you put them into software to actually render it, which rendering involves uh, lighting it and applying textures to 3D models. That software, there's Clarice, Houdini. Houdini also does effects, which is not so much part of our department, but it can be. Uh, Photoshop is a big part. Substance Painter, they're kind of all the main tools that I use pretty much every day. Obviously, you have found yourself as a CG environment kind of artist and supervisor and involved in creating worlds and creating environments. What are you using as, say, references for these environments? Where do you go to when a director comes along and says, okay, I want to have this particular scene? It depends on the show. I mean, it's that's part of what I love about my job is it's so diverse and projects are, are so different. For example, you could be recreating something that existed like 
I worked on a, a film called Bohemian Rhapsody where we had to recreate Wembley. That version of Wembley doesn't exist anymore, which I think is kind of a good thing. So I remember going when I was a kid and it just smelt of urine and was <laughs> very dilapidated. Yeah, um, I, I, I have similar memories of Wembley, actually, of that particular <laughs> Wembley. <laughs> Iconic yeah. as, the, uh, as the towers were. Yeah, it was. Yeah. the new facility is, is quite impressive. Gary, looking for reference for that, you, you're scanning through hours of live aid footage and photographs that were from the time that can be as simple as looking at stuff on the internet or the art department for the show will probably have access to archives of photography from from all sorts of different sources uh, whether that's the BBC or Queen themselves or whoever other shows they may have built part of the set you're based you're you're basing a lot of reference on photography from the set or going out you know going out to locations if if they haven't been able to film something in say the Vatican someone will probably go out and take some reference of the Vatican or or wherever it may be if it's something that doesn't exist kind of fantasy or science fiction then you're you're trying to look at making it look believable and look realistic so you you look at how concrete ages and how different materials look with age or distress and and you're trying to incorporate those things into into the design and what you're what you're making some visual effects supervisors like to actually build things for real and do little practical experiments and and you can get reference from from that sort of thing it sounds like a really interesting collaboration between say the art department when you're working on a film there's so many thousands of people who come together to bring a film to life how does it feel when you're sort of part of a team of that scale do you, do you ever have a sense of there being these thousands of people or do you generally tend to stick to your core group of of artists you tend to generally be working in your in your bubble in your your specific department i mean within within visual effects there are there are many different departments like the animation department the the effects department compositing match move roto prep and us we can do lots of different things hence the the generalist part of the job title we tend to pick up bespoke shots like establishing shots for a sequence or that kind of thing but we, we we can do other bigger tasks as well which which require more um more direction from the environments team where it would be difficult to compartmentalize so it's 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 easier to give the task to a generalist and they can they can look after the whole kind of look of a shot so generally kind of aware of of our small bubble but we know that there's a big team and and it might not even just be at our studio it might be it might, a film might be split up into several other facilities that are also working on 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 the project at the same time sometimes you share assets between but you're you're not really aware of who's working on what other facilities but i think that's a really a really exciting part of it in in that making a film is such a team game really no one person can make a film well sure you can one person could make a very small budget indie film to make blockbusters you need so many people because you, you it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of hours of work thousands that you you can't give that to one person as much as perhaps you're sort of in the press sometimes you're you're led to believe that that one person has done something like it's a it's a certain director's film ultimately it's it's their project and they're they're in control of it a lot of of the time but it's down to everyone really being on their a game and being professional and producing good work on time and to budget it's it's a it's a really it's a really difficult thing to do and to do well that's really interesting to hear, and I think it's. I like the idea that there's a positive sense of that team coming together, even though you wouldn't even meet maybe ten percent of the people that go into making the film in the process. Yeah, and that there's something kind of nice about that, how everyone kind of comes together for the sake of great storytelling or to put something together which is beautiful and moving, and everyone is kind of driven to tell that story. Yeah, you, you, there's certain projects when you know it's a it's a passion project and. And everybody's really invested in the idea and 
and and inspired by it and then there are other other films that are kind of not so much passion projects but you're very invested in your part of of the production and you want to do your job as well as you can okay so moving on to the fourth room where we're going to look at some of your work. Let's start by talking about film. At the start of your career, you were the on-set match mover for Joe Cornish's 2011 film, Attack the Block. So firstly, what was a match mover? And secondly, just tell me about the experience of being on so set. So you um, you basically just move matches around on set for some... <laughs> oh, is that it? Okay. Wow. Just a little matchbox. That's box it, yeah. It's a very important and... part of the process. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. No... It's just a little joke I like to have. <laughs> the match mover, the match mover, well, there are lots of match movers. The goal is when you've filmed something, you need to get a representation of that camera move into 3D. Once we've created 3D, say you've created a little character walking around and the, the, the real camera was wobbling around and moving all over the place, that creature needs to track with the camera move without it it's useless nothing works so it's one of i mean everything is important with with visual effects right right up from this role which is match move and that was seen as an entry-level position when i started you kind of worked your way up from there um through either the, the match move or the roto departments and and your job as the in match move was literally to just create 3d cameras on the computer that match the move of the the real camera um, so that you can track in CG elements. Well, when I was on set, you, you have to note down certain information about the cameras, what aperture they're on, what focal length, anything that can help you when you come back to the office and you have to track the cameras. Part of that role as well was, was data acquisition. It's kind of been broadened more into a term of data wrangler, where you're on set, you, you, you not only collect information about cameras for for the match move department and comp as well as you know they the compositors need to know how much depth of field to add to the camera for example um so they need to know the apertures the camera operators were using as a data wrangler and also what i was doing on attack the block was was capturing reference texture reference which i spoke about a little bit earlier scanning locations to get 3d representations of them so you'd use something called a total station which you you see quite often on the street when you're walking around surveyors or whoever using these things on tripods that shoot a little laser beam out and it it times how long it takes to come back and then it creates a point um, in 3d space and you shoot lots of different points out and then you can create a 3d model from that it must be quite a challenging shoot because from if memory serves me correctly nearly all of attack the block is filmed at night as well so were you on night shoots for the whole process yeah i I was desperate to get on set i really really wanted to know what it was going to be like to to be on a film set probably like a lot of people you you think it's it's going to be a very exciting environment and and it can be it can be a really exciting environment it can be a very dull and boring environment as well because you're often waiting around for your next job for when it's your time to do your bit so there can be a fair fair amount of killing time as well but yeah the night shoots were, were really hard i've never worked a shift job before you feel completely out of sync with the world um because when you're going to work you're not only going to this environment that is completely shut off from the outside world because of, you know, they don't want to have any leaks or anything like that about what, what the film's going to look like or who's in, sometimes even who's in the film or, you know, whatever, any of that kind of stuff. So you're not only quarantined in a way and just by the nature of it being a film set, but it's, it's even more so when you're on a night shoot in the Haygate estate in Elephant and Castle. So it is is quite, it's tough. You, you always have to have a sense of perspective in that you're, you're making a film. No one's life depends on it. Well, it can do, with stuntmen, for example. You, you sort of get what I mean. It's not, you're not a doctor or, so it, it's hard relatively. It's, it's very, very long hours. You're doing 12, 12 hours. You come home, all you're good for is going straight to bed, really, and then get, getting up and going straight to work again so you don't you don't have any time for anything else when you're when you're shooting a film 
was there any crossover with the with the cast on a film like that? I mean, you had a couple of real star making performances from people like obviously John Boyega taking the lead character, but you had Jodie Whittaker there as well. You know, there's some there's some real real stars in this one. I couldn't believe that Jodie Whittaker had a. She's from Yorkshire, I think. Mm, yeah, because she, she puts on this perfect London accent in the film. And that's, <laughs> that's what she gets paid for. <laughs> it blew it blew my mind when I when I heard her speak. Yeah, so I mean, I I, I spoke to to a few of them. I spoke to like Nick Frost and John Boyega. Every, everyone was lovely. Like John Boyega was 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 really 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 nice guy. I spoke to him a few times on, on set, but it was. It was really nice to see that he's doing so well now because he's. It's nice when you see good things happening to lovely people who are talented. Yeah, Nick Frost is he's really funny guy. He's very he's very personable and the main thing was I was just really shy. I was so starstruck by being in this environment. I I think I'd probably be a bit different now. I'd probably be a bit more. Um, talkative but but i was i was really trying to um you know not step on anyone's toes or get in the way of anything yeah it was great for that and and joe cornish as well i spoke to him a few times and he was he was um he was very personable really nice guy Mm. as well so you didn't steal the last danish from joe cornish and disrupt the whole film (laughs) there was was no issues like that (laughs) no 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 issues like that yeah he was um he was uh, very lovely. Actually, Edgar Wright was on set one night oh, as well, fantastic. and he was he was very friendly. So that I mean that was great because obviously I loved Adam and Joe growing up and Shaun of the Dead and Spaced, and so uh, getting to meet some of those guys was 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 brilliant. That's the thing. It, it must be difficult not to be a little bit starstruck by people who have had a positive influence or people whose content that you've enjoyed as well. But uh, yeah, everyone's there to do a job on the set, and I'm sure you were th- you were thoroughly professional in that moment. Yeah, you don't want to say like "I love you" or <laughs> you know something really dorky. <laughs> it's, it's, you got to keep that stuff locked down. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's it's really difficult to to know the balance, isn't it? It's like everyone's sort of seen someone famous in the street who they look up to or they've liked what they've done, and you wonder whether you should go up to them and say, "I really like." what you've done you're great i love you you don't do it well i don't anyway because <laughs> you because <laughs> you think they're probably on their way to sainsbury's or something they don't want to be bothered and it's uh they've got stuff to do and they're probably sick of people coming up and not that this platform necessarily has the widest reach yet but i should apologize to eddie azard because just before lockdown i got really excited because i saw eddie azard in the street and um He's an absolute hero of, of myself and, and hero of my family as well. We, we all love his comedy. And then when I saw him in the street, I got really excited. And uh, <laughs> we, did, we did a distanced um, selfie, but I think he was clearly wanting to be elsewhere. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, so sorry, Eddie, about that. That was, that was unintentional. That only came from a place of love and admiration. So I am one of those people. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure I listened to a podcast, actually, where he mentioned doing socially distanced selfies. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And it was this. It was this. this There was a strange blonde bearded man (laughs) who got really annoyed. (laughs) And he's. I think he's thinking of taking out a a lawsuit or something. (laughs) I think. Yeah. Think. I think I remember that. (laughs) I better get some sponsors for this podcast so I can make some money and uh, pay those legal fees. I saw uh, Rich D. Grant in a pret once, and I really, really wanted to talk to him because I just I love with Nail and I. Yeah, I, I, it didn't seem right. He was very engaged in uh, picking out what sandwich he wanted. So, when, when you're working in the center of Soho, as as you do, you must come across so many of these iconic people kind of passing through, and actually just through your offices as well. There'll be days when you know people like Christopher Nolan just walks past. Do you ever cross over with with the directors in that sense? In in when you're working in the office, the directors will tend to just meet with the, the visual effects supervisors, who they're kind of running the whole the whole thing for the whole visual effects side of things. So, I mean, there are times when you go into meetings with them. Before we went into lockdown, we we'd have chats via not Zoom but sort of equivalent software. If they're based in LA or Canada, or wherever wherever the director may be, but they may be doing they may be doing reshoots or that sort of thing. I would imagine in the process that a director's time is so precious as well because they are just making decisions and decisions and decisions all day long. Having people come up, so their time will be so precious in terms of being able to to give to the film you know everything has to go into the film 
Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of pressure, as you say, a lot of responsibility, a lot of lot of weight on on your shoulders. I think. Obviously, we mentioned Christopher Nolan just then, and most recently you've been working on Tenet. But also, if I look down your INDB uh, profile, we can see that you've worked on massive blockbuster films, including things like films from the Marvel universe. Talking about Marvel, should the CGI artists be higher up the credits? Because it feels like when you sit at the end of the Marvel credits, and actually one thing that Marvel has done by adding the post-credit sequence, we now get to see the artists. But should the artists be higher up? It feels like you're so you're responsible for so much of the experience of those films. Oh, we should we should be at the at the top. It should be willful <laughs> <Yeah>. presents. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The Infinity Wars. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think Hollywood has a very very strange relationship with visual effects. It's um, oh, quite often you you hear directors say, "Oh, we we haven't used any visual effects in this film. We've got it all in camera," um, and it's it's become a bit of a bit of a dirty word, I suppose. People might see a, a film that's that gets bad reviews, and a reviewer might pick up on like there's a lot of visual effects in it and more spectacle than narrative or 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 whatever mark kermay's done some some good stuff to to raise awareness of just how many hours go into productions and not not just him as well i mean there are a lot of actors as well who try to give vfx its due should they be should visual effects be higher i mean <laughs> Probably, I guess it's just it's just the way it is. It's still a relatively new part of the film production process, and I think things will probably change, especially the times that we're in now. It's it's very hard to to make films at the moment because of what's going on with coronavirus. It's films will become even more reliant on on visual effects to fill in the blanks where they they can't have huge ensemble casts or they can't have huge crowd shots i think it must be interesting working with directors who do to the average viewer would be considered almost like an invisible special effects so you're creating an environment which it's it's not fantastical it's you're you're just kind of tidying something up i guess and and like you say, doing those kind of minor set extensions just to just to fill the world out that little bit more so I think a lot of the time people maybe don't realise how much goes into that as well. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, sometimes even I don't. Like so sometimes, you know, you, you watch something and you you had no idea that it was a visual effects shot. Sometimes I've you know, I've seen breakdowns on YouTube or whatever of Mad Men or something like that. And you think, Oh wow, that was done on green screen. I can forgive people for of course for not knowing and there's so many seamless effects that you would never know were effects there's things that you wouldn't even think of like someone's collar was up in a shot and they didn't notice and then it was it's cheaper for us to fix it rather than get all the actors back in dress the sets dress the, you know do all of that stuff and reshoot it i think unfortunately everyone noticed henry cavill's top lip <laughs> for the uh, for the justice league film that was Yes, that was that was unfortunate. <laughs> Not so seamless. Let's let's move on to uh, talk about your work in TV as well. You know, we were talking about environments and creating environments. Last year, you and your team won an Emmy for outstanding special visual effects and supporting role for Chernobyl. And firstly, congratulations on that. It is just the most incredible looking show. How did you go about recreating the environment of a of a nuclear reactor? And what kind of research were you able to carry out? It's so specific and it's something which really existed. And yeah, where do you begin on a project like that? It's a dream project to work on, really, because it was the script was was amazing. You could sort of tell that it was going to be special because everything that had been shot looked great and it, everything felt so authentic. And so the pressure was was really on for us as well. Within the environments department, we we were doing a, a fair amount of, of matte paintings, which is a really old technique where people used to paint on glass and they'd have it in front of the camera and film through the camera. They'd paint, you know, a castle or or whatever it may be that's part of what we do but we do it in photoshop and then we also have a 3d element as well where i was building part of the reactor that had been destroyed in terms of approaching it lots of reference lots of stock footage from the time the art department had loads of great stuff 
you found yourself on weird corners of the internet full of full of photographs from from helicopters and newsreels um it's, it's a bit like being a detective trying to piece together as much information as as you possibly can to to make it as close as you possibly can within the time you're given the thing is you could make it one for one but it would take so long to do you know there's a set budget to these things they can't go on and on and on it was pretty satisfying seeing if you go on the internet there's various comparisons where people have put the show next to footage from the time and newsreels not not just the visual effects but everybody was was so true to creating something that felt authentic down to buying clothes on eBay from you know from the Ukraine the the correct vehicles and the correct first responder unif- uniforms and there's a brilliant podcast which will tell you more information than I ever could about Chernobyl uh, and the making of it and it's fascinating all the all the research that they did and that went into it and it was a drive to not only try and make it feel authentic but to sort of do the incident justice because it's affected so so many people in all sorts of different ways and i mean i was actually born the day it happened oh, wow. it, it, it always featured in my life in the background perhaps more than other people in the uk this is 26th of april 1986 that this that's happened. the one yeah everybody wanted to really do ordinary people justice because it's and it's similar to what's going on at the moment with doctors and police officers and they're trying to keep society running and functioning yes they're doing their job but people are losing their lives to help the the greater good and it's it's a very humbling thing and i think that's what i mean i felt and i think a lot of other people felt when, when we're working on it, that the untold story of ordinary people's loss and and how important it is to give them a voice. And I know the show creator was, was also really focusing on lies and how they can make situations so much worse. It, it feels applicable to lots of lots of situations, really, when people aren't willing to take responsibility for, for reasons saving face or arrogance or, or pride or whatever whatever it may be it is kind of a story of ordinary people willing to pick up the pieces when others make catastrophic mistakes really and, and don't want to try and fix them they refuse to acknowledge that they exist like you say it seems so prescient now even after all this time we're, we're still going about society in a very similar way i think in terms of the, the arrogance of people not wanting to accept blame for certain situations and and just a whole group of society just trying to trying to keep on and, and keep things rolling it is just an extraordinary piece of tv and anyone who hasn't seen it should really make an effort to try and check it out because the cast the the visuals the storytelling everything feels like a perfect swiss clock of a production it, it really blew my mind oh i'm glad you glad you enjoyed it i mean it's a it's brilliant to be a part of it i was, was really really chuffed to, to play my my small role in in bringing it together and you got the emmy for it as well so uh, <laughs> it's not just about the uh, the awards but it's it's nice to be acknowledged i couldn't imagine the telling of this story in a film do you think that it had to be a TV series in order to really do it justice. There's so much exciting stuff happening on on TV, and because of that, because it's a, you can really get into the the narrative and the and getting to know the character. Something that you 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 is is harder to do when you've when you've only got an an hour and a half. In my in my humble opinion, yeah, it's it's. I think it was it was great that it it was five episodes and the writers could take us through this story and 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 really hammer home what he was trying to say and and it would be harder in a film I think to to do that. Are you being given more TV work in recent years or are you still primarily working on kind of big blockbusters? Bit of both. I think it TV's got a lot of really exciting stuff going on and i think there's a lot of work in 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 both fields really it's it's different work i think it's tv generally has a smaller budget film generally has a much bigger budget and there's certain things that that come with that you can probably take more risks with tv shows because you're not spending as as much money on it got platforms like apple and 
uh, Netflix and and all the rest who are sort of sinking money into productions and to keep people subscribing and, and interested in in their platform, which is which I think is great because it, it allows there to be this sort of freedom creatively. You know, you look at Netflix and you've got such a wide range of of different programs. A lot of them look as good as feature films. You you wonder what's going to happen as well with theatres and coronavirus. And I know they, for example, released a few films that were due to be released at the cinema over streaming and they did really well. And it's kind of a bit of a worry for theatres. You know, are movie studios still going to want to release stuff into theatres if they can release it straight to streaming and make more money? It's... I think they'll they'll still exist, both of them. Obviously, people will still make films and people will still make TV. It just might shift around a bit where where we see them. Films that have been released recently, they've done relatively well, considering. It does seem like there's still an appetite for, for people to still go out to the movies. You can have the best sound system in the world, but nothing can really recreate the experience of being in a the theatre and having that theatre audience response as well. You know, recently I w- I've my first cinema experience post lockdown was was going to see Tenet, the new Christopher Nolan film, and that was brilliant. It felt exciting to watch a film again at scale. I've loved the convenience of having Netflix and and all the and other streaming services are obviously available, but in terms of the air and the space and that sense of an audience watching a film and and an audience, you know, a room full of people figuring something out or a room full of people laughing you know, eventually when a comedy gets released. Hopefully we will get people back into theatres because I think you need that experience. You know, even last year, I went to go see The Irishman, knowing that it was a Netflix film. I went to go see it in the cinema because I just thought, well, this is Martin Scorsese. You know, you want to see that mm. in the full, fully-fledged form. It just to feel like it wouldn't have... I haven't watched it on the small screen, but it was brilliant on the big screen. And I think it it gave it room to sort of breathe. But Maybe the advantage of being at home is that you can pause it because obviously the film's three and a half hours long. But <laughs> the personal preference and, and the comfort of which people people operate. But yeah, yeah. I t- I totally agree. I th- I mean I I love going to the cinema and I love um I love that you're just focused on the film and you can't you can't do that stuff like you can't look at your phone. Well, you can if you're an ass. If you're a terrible person. <laughs> Or a doctor, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, if, true. If you have an important role. Sorry, I shouldn't do such a sweeping judgment. <laughs> In which case, that's absolutely fine if it's an emergency. But it's a. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's great to it's great to to go out and watch a film with lots of other people. It's a yeah, you feel that that energy, and it's what makes it so special. And you all come out, and if it's been if it was a great film, very occasionally, you know, you get a round of applause and people with people loved it like i remember going to see get out and everybody just we loved it in the in the theater and clapped and it's very rare that people clap in a british cinema but i was just about to say in a british cinema (laughs) every experience i've had seeing a film in the states for example has been um yeah there's been a lot of audience participation (laughs) it's it's a very different experience it's great fun i don't necessarily want it for everything but yeah in a british cinema the idea of applause is extraordinary yeah and it's and it's great when you come out and you hear everyone's really excited and they're talking about it and you know certain bits within the film and and it's you don't get that really (laughs) when you're watching that when you're watching (laughs) at home well i think if we can have a model where you have people like netflix commissioning whatever they want really and going down these interesting avenues you know finding new talent trying to find that next exciting thing but also with their money, they can do a cinema release as well. I feel like that model would be great because not everyone can get to the cinema. People have commitments, people have childcare. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that, that may prevent people from being able just to casually go to the cinema. So I feel like if there's a model which can satisfy both, then that could be a really exciting future. Definitely. There's, there's no reason why they can't coexist. Okay, so we've come to the final room. The final room is our gift shop. Will, I'm going to give you a five rooms tote bag. And in this bag, you get to choose an object for the listeners to take away with them to remind them of their experience today. What are you going to offer in the five rooms gift shop? I think it's got to be um, Chernobyl or Chernobyl, as uh, the French guys at work <laughs> pronounced it. <Ooh. laughs> it sounds so much more musical and romantic. 
I think it is it's probably been my highlight of my career so far. And it really was a an absolute pleasure to work on it. And I think it's such an important series to watch as well. It's the sort of project you dream of working on in a way that I used to dream that I'd worked on Blade Runner. I kind of have a little bit of that feeling now of, of working on something that that was received so well and and went down so well critically and with you know audiences and stuff and a show that I, I really enjoyed watching and I remember watching it and I don't know if you have this but sometimes when you watch like a, a disaster film that's fictional you have this moment and you think oh thank god it's it's all it's all made up I had that moment in Chernobyl and then I realized it was real <laughs> and it happened <laughs> and I didn't have that wave of relief and I was like Oh God, it just, it, it really brought it home. So we'll have a copy of the DVD and the Blu-ray in each one of these tote bags. And we'll make sure that everyone finds some time to watch it because it really is an extraordinary series. Well, Will, thank you so much for your time today and for taking us through your five rooms. Oh, it's a pleasure. I could talk films with you for hours and hours. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's that's the trouble is that we could go on and we very often do. Yeah. So uh, usually we will go and see a film and that will be the, the point at which we have to stop talking because we have to watch another film, <laughs> which we'll then talk about and, uh, and the cycle continues. But uh, yeah, it's been really good fun today. So thank you very much. That's been great. Thanks again to Will Forsyth for speaking to me. Well, what a first 10 episodes this has been. It has been a real pleasure to be able to share many hardworking and creative, talented individuals with you. As I said in the intro, this is the final episode of this first series. But the good news is that it isn't the end, just a brief intermission. Even as I speak, future guests are clambering to appear in series two. And by clambering, I mean they're being politely asked. However, there are already a number of interviewees signed up, so I hope you can join me again in the not-too-distant future. Finally, I just want to say how grateful I am to everyone who has appeared on the show so far, and for the positive feedback which people have sent my way in response to the show. Every email, every WhatsApp message, and every comment that you have made has been saved in a special folder on my computer for me to treasure. So to you, dear listener, I say thank you. Thank you for sparing your time and your mind. And I hope you join me again for Series 2 of Five Rooms. This is Oliver Card. Take care.